Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. It's Wednesday night and we're back live and it's time for Friends in Fiction. Let's get rolling because we have amazing guests to get to tonight and lots more to celebrate. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Kristen Harvell. And I'm Meg Walker. And this is Friends in Fiction for New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we have a great show in store for you. We'll be welcoming Hazel Gaynor and Catherine Ray, and T.I. Lowe will be joining for the after show. And as you might have noticed, we've got our managing director, Chief Cat Herder, Meg Walker, standing in tonight for Christy, who has a previous commitment. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, so since the beginning, over three years ago, we've been here to bring you incredible authors, hot reads, and fascinating interviews, all while supporting independent booksellers. One way you can help us support indies is to buy from them when and where you can, or to visit our own Friends and Fiction bookshop.org page, where you could find Hazel's, Catherine's, and T.I.'s books, and books by these four authors, and all of our guests at a discount. And speaking of amazing books, don't forget to join the Friends in Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa on their own separate Facebook page. I just joined them as a substitute co-host on Monday with Patty to talk about the secret book of Florley. It was so fun. Um, And coming up next month, their guest is Kristen to discuss The Paris Daughter. Yeah, now without (laughs) further ado, let's welcome our guest, Hazel Gaynor. So Hazel's an award-winning New York Times, USA Today, Irish Times, and international best-selling author. Her most recent historical novel, set in China during World War II, was published as The Bird in the Bamboo Cage in the UK, Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand, and as When We Were Young and Brave here in the US and in Canada. It was an Irish Times bestseller, a national bestseller in the US, and it was also shortlisted for the 2020 Irish Book Awards. Hazel's work has been translated into 18 languages and is published in 25 territories to date. More to come, I am sure. She lives in Ireland and is there live with us right now, which means she is coming to us at midnight her time. And that's where she lives with her husband and her two children. Her new novel, The Last Lifeboat, and I love that cover, was just released last week on June 13th. Sean, can you bring Hazel on? Hi, Hi. Hazel. Hazel. <laughs> Welcome, Hazel. We're so happy to have you. Hazel, I was show showing... everybody your T-shirt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pull it off. Oh, look. I, love I love that in Ireland. <laughs> in Ireland. That's amazing. <laughs> You're awesome. You're awesome. <laughs> I'm well, going to surprise you guys. <laughs> One more reason to love you. Okay, so now we like to do a quick warm-up chat with guests before we dive into questions whenever we have time. And tonight, we're just taking the time. Now, here is my question for everybody tonight. 
if you had to abandon a sinking ship, which uh, the characters in Hazel's book do, what one thing would you grab? You know, I thought a lot, a lot, not a lot, but I thought enough about this when I was writing Surviving Savannah. And of course, I want to say a laptop, but you can't float in a lifeboat with a laptop. So after thinking about it and writing about it, I think I would grab any damn thing that floats. <laughs> right? That's Sorry. my answer. Good answer. Yeah. yeah, well, I was thinking about it, too. And I thought I should say something, you know, sentimental like my family. But let's face it. I'm a lifelong asthmatic. So I'm grabbing my inhaler. <laughs> I, you know, for me, I, th- I think Patty has the right idea about grabbing something that floats. Cause like what else matters if you can't survive? Yeah. Right. But I'm going to make my way over to Patty's floaty with my cell phone, because I feel like everything is on my cell phone. I mean, also my son, I'll probably grab my son too, but like, but Assuming he is safe, my cell phone on Patty's floaty. Thank you, Patty. There you go. You're welcome. I'll share my floaty with you. (laughs) Unless it's like the little piece of wood that Jack and Rose were on. And then I know. (laughs) Are you just going to shove me off and then like make a movie about me later? I would feel. I'll hold your cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think I would grab my family. In in fact, I think honestly they would grab me um, because I would be a hot mess in a situation like that. And also, my son is he could carry me. So I would have him then carry me over to Kathy so I could use her puffer because I would definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Meg and I go on tour together and we have a shared inhaler a lot of the time. Yeah. Get me to Kathy with her puffer. <laughs> and then we're going to pat, we're going to climb onto Patty's back. <laughs> she's got the only float. She's got the only floatable. That's the only reason we're not there will sinking. be plenty, plenty of room because she'll have shoved me off already. So you guys are all set. But you can try off the door. Okay, oh, so what about you? After all this research you did for this book, what would you grab? Well, you see, I was going to say something sensible like, you know, my beloved children or my, you know, my diary that I've obviously been keeping whilst I was in the lifeboat. But um, now you've got me thinking. So I think I'd probably grab a bottle of whiskey because (laughs) if if you drink alcohol and you're in cold water, it can keep you warm and you may survive. So if the door with Jack and Rose isn't available and you guys have all just swum off with your essentials and left me. Um, so maybe a bottle of whiskey to, to see me along. <laughs> I think we all Hazel, 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 let me just say you do great honor to that shirt. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and by the way, if you've got whiskey, we're all swimming over to you. So I'm in Ireland. We always know where the party is, right? So you can come to the party. <laughs> okay. Enough of this formality. <laughs> yes let's get serious that's, here please that's right let's talk about diving diving do you see how i did that diving thing yep. yeah diving into this engrossing novel if you would tell us what the book is about and then what is it really about oh great question okay so the last lifeboat is set in the second world war um in May, June of 1940. And it's inspired by the most astonishing true story. When you think you've learned and heard everything about the Second World War and you find a whole piece of that event that you didn't know about. I read one word and that word was sea evacuees. 
And this unlocked a whole story of children who were sent away from Britain by sea to Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And what happened was one of these CVAC ships taking children from Liverpool to Canada was torpedoed in the Atlantic by a German U-boat. Um, and there was a lifeboat that was lost in the rescue effort. And the last lifeboat is my imagined story of that lifeboat that was lost um, and what happens to the people in that lifeboat and what happened to the people back in London and England who had put loved ones on that torpedo ship. So it's incredibly dramatic. It has all of those human elements of survival, the what if. I think what it's really about, which I love that part of your question, is the consequence of choice and I love that. what happens when we take one direction or another. And obviously at a time of war, there's often no best solution. Um, and I, I have this sort of ongoing conflict and dilemma about what if and what decisions do my characters make? So just a whole other piece of the war, the war that I didn't know about and this remarkable story of survival and hope in the face of adversity. Oh, well said. Love it, love it. The consequence of choices. I love that. So yeah, you and I talked when we both found out that we were both writing child evacuee stories. Yeah. I think it is so fascinating when the story gods offer up the same idea but different to two or more authors. And we both wrote about the evacuation of these children during World War II and their fates. And you know how much I loved your book. I blurbed it and I've been talking about it on the road, telling everyone, if you want a whole different view of evacuation, you know, check this out. It's a completely different point of view for the same evacuation. What I want to know, because I never did ask, is what inspired this story for you? Because I can point to what inspired me to write about the children about what inspired it what did you see or read or hear yeah. well i think you know as as we all probably do you know when you're sort of exploring ideas for a new book um and i was purposefully looking at i was trying to find something unusual about the war and i was actually looking at different ministries um, and some of them sound like they're out of harry potter you know the ministry of information was one of them and I fell down this kind of rabbit hole of looking at different departments. And I found a department called the Children's Overseas Reception Board. And I was like, what's that? Children overseas? What, what's happening here? And I followed that thread, as we often do, and, and found an article on the Imperial War Museum's website where I saw that word, sea evacuees, and it went on to talk about this ship, the city of Benares that was torpedoed and this astonishing story of a, a missing lifeboat of survivors. So yeah, I think I was, I was looking for something. I didn't know quite what I was looking for. Um, you know, in amongst the Ministry of Food, here was this Ministry of Information. Um, and that then unlocked this, this whole other event. And as you say, you know, we're, we're, I think, more familiar with children who were evacuated within Britain. So from the cities that were in danger of being bombed, as you know, as you so beautifully tell in, in the uh, Flora Lee. Um, but it was so strange to me to have never heard of, of children leaving Britain and the choice that parents were given 
you know, do you keep them at home or are you going to put them on this ship? And you had to apply to have your child hopefully get one of these places on a ship. So, yeah, that's where it came from. And it was just immediate. I just thought this is this has so many elements. I'm really fascinated by stories of survival I'm terrified of the ocean. So this is worst possible scenario for me. Uh, I actually get very seasick when I'm on the water. So, you know, this was a book I probably should never have written, but maybe that morbid fascination of, goodness, what what would I do? I mean, you know, joking, I'd grab the whiskey. I, I don't know what, I'd probably be in a panic completely. So there was lots of interesting human drama elements that, instantly sparked you know those when the lights go off and you're like well and it's so great because both of us it was one phrase for me it was operation pied piper for you it was sea evacuees and when you hear something and you go ding 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 like that you ignore that at your own creative peril and brava this was beautifully done absolutely and i think you know sometimes i think sometimes we find an idea and for whatever reason it doesn't work for us or it doesn't work for us at that time. And then somebody else writes it a few years later and you're like, oh, okay, I'm good with that, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't it wasn't your story to keep. Um, so it's very special when you do find something and it, it all comes together quite quickly. Um, and yeah, I mean, Operation Pied Piper, again, another fantastic phrase, piece of history, that first mass evacuation, um, and then the second one. So how astonishing that we both found those stories at the same time. Amazing. Um, we should we be have prepared. A, we have a question. <laughs> uh, we have a question we, from web. Uh, we have a question from someone who's watching live who wants to know, Hazel, if there were some children that um, of the sea evacuees from the ship that were saved. Yes. So um, there were over 20,000 um, places available for children. There were over 200,000 parents applied to have their children evacuated. So the, the numbers were enormous because it was it was feared at the time that Hitler and the Nazis were going to invade. So Britain really had to take a big decision to send the children away. Um, so totally oversubscribed. There were about 3,000 children had been evacuated once the program started in July of 1940. The event I write about was in September 1940 and led to the immediate suspension of the program because obviously the risks were far too great. One ship had been torpedoed in August, but everybody survived. So they just continued on with the program because they said, well, look, everyone survived. So let's just keep going. one little torpedo, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there were um, 90 children that were on the city of Benares, the ship that was torpedoed. um, And 13 of those children survived. Um, So the numbers are are tragic. um, And obviously a very harrowing time for Britain when morale, everybody wanted morale to be up because the blitz was happening. So this was such a a shocking, um, you know, seismic event and, and was, you know, very quickly, I suppose, resulted in the, in the whole scheme being suspended. Um, but the story I tell in The Last Lifeboat is a fictional account of some of those children and one woman in the lifeboat, a volunteer, who went with the children to escort them and a mother in London. And it's that 
singular event from two very different points of view. And we move back and forth to see this event unfold through my character, Alice and Lily. Um, yeah. And the children's voices were really important to me. I really wanted to put children in the boat and give the children a voice because children so often don't get a voice, yeah. particularly at the time of war. So it felt very important to me to give each child a very distinct narrative arc and, and tell their own story in the lifeboat. Love that. Well, let's talk about those women, um, Alice and Lily. So as someone who's read a lot about the role of civilian women in World War II, I was fascinated by the dual points of view. And um, so would you talk a little bit about Lily and Alice's stories and what inspired them for you? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it was it came to me very quickly. I, I, I wanted to tell this story from the point of view of two women, but from two very different ends of the spectrum of this tragedy. Alice is actually inspired by a remarkable woman who was on that ship and was in that lifeboat oh, called Mary oh, Cornish. Wow. Yeah. So Mary Cornish was a music teacher in London who stepped up to act as a volunteer escort with the CVACs. And she was the only woman in that lost lifeboat. And I suppose it was assumed, therefore, that she would take most of the responsibility for the children's welfare. So my character, Alice, is very closely modelled on Mary Cornish. Mary was awarded an OBE um, after the event, was incredibly humble and shy, didn't want any of the fuss and attention. And there's remarkable images and footage of her um, in the aftermath of the event. And then Lily is really just a woman who encapsulates the ordinary working class mother, woman, left behind um, when the men were, were gone. And it's really her voice that tells a lot of ordinary women's stories of war that we don't hear very often. Um, you know, her, her bravery, her choices are in very, very different to those that we perhaps emulate and talk about as being heroic. So Lily, to me, really brought in a lot of strong women in my life, strong women I've read about who went through unimaginable ordeals on the home front um, and is a mother, as am I. So I think she really encapsulates that um, impossible agonizing, what on earth would you do if you're given that choice? Do you send your children overseas? Do you keep them at home with a risk of being bombed? And I, I adore them both. I felt so close to both women when I was writing them. Um, and, and, you know, it's lovely to now be talking about them again because, you know, you write the book, you finished the book a while ago. So it's lovely to be hearing readers' responses to Alice and Lily as well. Yeah, you know, so much of wartime fiction um, focuses on the bravery of the men on the front. Mm -hmm. So I was fascinated um, in The Last Lifeboat you really address issues of desertion and conscientious objectors and men who tried to serve but failed medical exams. And I think you so rarely see that point of view. Yes. Um, and, and again, that was, it was something that I didn't really make a conscious decision to do. I just, when I was writing the, the male um, components in this story, I, I just found myself writing their slightly different experience of war. And, and I guess it came from having discovered this very unfamiliar piece of the war with the sea evacuees and maybe 
my imagination just continued on that thread, you know, thinking about things. I suppose we look back and assume everybody did the right thing. Everybody stepped up. Everybody yeah. was brave. And of course, there are always exceptions to the rule. And there will always be people who see things very differently. Mm. And I think we don't often give credit to those men who, for whatever reason, you know, just couldn't make that moral stance, um, didn't have the whatever to, to see it through or took a very different out. Um, and I felt it was really important to share their stories as well. So I hope that the the male characters who, who are threaded through um, bring a little different uh, voice again to a more familiar story of war that that we would associate with the men who went to battle, battle and the you know the heroics we saw up in the sky. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed writing those characters as well. Awesome. Made them seem very real, especially the brother who was a conscientious objector. He had to face down all the people in the village where they lived, calling yeah. him you know a coward Ooh. and spitting on him. Yeah. And I think we, you know, aren't we fascinated by people who do take a slightly different view or who are, you know, flawed in, in ways? You know, I think right. that really adds depth and texture to a story because we're all flawed in our own ways, you know, and we all make what? the wrong decision or that. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I'm really interested in, in, sort of people who are a bit messy, um, you know, people who don't necessarily tick all of the right boxes and how does that unravel for them? So, yeah, it was really interesting to tell those different stories. Yeah, that that added just such a human element to it. I mean, it just, I, to me, reading that brought the story alive in a different way. So it, to switch tracks a little bit, Hazel, I wanted to ask you, so for the last few days, as I'm sure you know, the world has been watching as an international group of rescue ships and aircraft try to locate a submersible that went missing while oh. on its way to explore the Titanic. And of course, it's nearly out of air. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to ask you about it since your first novel, The Girl Who Came Home, published in 2012, was about the Titanic. What do you think or why do you think that we as a society remain so fascinated by that shipwreck more than a century after it went down? What is it about the Titanic that keeps people coming back? Gosh, yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? What, what we're seeing. Um, it's, mm. it's really quite strange for me because I, I feel like my, you know, my first book, as you say, was about the Titanic. And here I am with my current release, which is a story of survival at sea in the mid-Atlantic. And it just feels like two of my books have sort of strangely come together. And I'm watching this, again, this very human drama unfold and thinking about the parallels with The Last Lifeboat and that agony of not knowing, that agony of worrying and how do we hear how do we know what's ha happened to our loved ones I think and I know there are lots of conversations happening in at the minute about should the submarine have even been anywhere near the wreck of the Titanic is it okay to to go and visit what essentially is a mass grave and I I think the fascination is similarly the fascination that drew me to the last lifeboat it's that it's that sense of what would I do? What would I have yeah. done? Um, and, you know, the Titanic was one of those 
events that happened pre-war. So it was a story sort of of drama all on its own. You know, subsequent years, we had so many dramas happening back to back. And I think because the wreck is there now and because we've had artifacts brought up, because we've heard of, of survivors, it makes that distant event feel very, very relatable and present. Yeah. Mm. And I think we do look back and think, would I have jumped off that into a lifeboat or would I have stayed with my husband? Um, what yeah. choice would I have made? Yeah. And and I think it is it is that human fascination, the unimaginable playing out. Again, it's that morbid fascination. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's one of those evergreen stories. And it's incredibly, I keep getting goosebumps when I think about it because it's... Um, you know, it, as I say, it's pulling two of my books together in a re really strange, quite chilling way. Um, and, you know, we all just hope that there there is time to get to them if if they can find the sub. Um, but, you know, human drama playing out in real time is just... Um, it's quite shocking to watch, isn't it? Um, yes. and there will be a lot of debate, I know, about should we be visiting these sites where, you know, traumatic events happened. And I think that's a conversation for another time, not now. I think we just want everybody to hopefully be found. Um, but, yeah, it's been quite a strange time uh, yes. for me. Yeah. Well, Hazel, you've given us a lot to think about and talk about. Um, and I think all of us, if you haven't read The Last, Life, Last Lifeboat, now you'd want to. Would you tell us before we let you go where everybody can find you online and on tour? Yes, online, um, procrastinating mostly when I should be writing. <laughs> same, right here, my, same. My next book. So I'm, um, I'm quite straightforward. I'm at Hazel Gaynor on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Hazel Gaynor Books on Facebook. And I'm hazelgaynor.com is my website. And you can sign up for my monthly newsletter where I share lots of upcoming book news and giveaways. And um, yeah, all the, all the sneaky peeks come in there. <laughs> Can't wait. Thank you again, Hazel. Okay. Hey, thank you so thank much. You. Thank, thank you. you. Well, tonight, Hazel. Thank, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yes. Nighty night. Thanks, Hazel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, everybody. We're excited to get to Catherine Ray, but first, a few quick, few quick messages from us. And do not forget, we have an after show tonight. Stop though. Wait first. <laughs> we have something to celebrate because we were not live last week when we got the huge news, the super news, the super duper news that Kristen is number nine on Woo! New York. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. Um, so honestly, my granddaughter drew on the first one, and I opted not to show it. I oh, I want to see I, that one. I'll put it's over. It's over across the room. I will okay, post Kathy, it. that's beautiful. It looks like an angry snake. It yeah. does. <laughs> I made Tom draw that, draw that for me, to be honest. That's, awesome. that's amazing. You know, you guys, I just got back from book tour a couple days ago. It was two solid weeks. I'm still kind of recovering. 
But I would say that one thing I absolutely came out of that tour with was just an intense sense of gratitude for all yeah. the all the people who showed up on the road, all the people who showed up online, all the people who sent me messages, just all of you in this friends and fiction community who bought the book, who talked about the book, who recommended the book. Um, you know, we, we couldn't do it without you. So thank you all so much. Um, I'm thrilled and moved and touched, but most of all grateful. So thank you. So fun celebrating with you. Yeah. So yeah. fun. So fun. And don't speak in the past tense either because the, the love just keeps going and going. On yeah. for your I, I know. I mean, that's the beautiful <laughs> thing about being in this community is we feel it all the time, whether, yes. you know, whether we have a new release or not. So we're, we, we truly are the luckiest. I mean, you know, we, we, I know we all feel it all the time, but we are genuinely the luckiest to have this beautiful, wonderful community of friends and fiction readers. But I think, I think all of us have felt it everywhere on the road and, and it means so much. Yeah. Yep. Um, we've mentioned all four of the fabulous friends and fiction host authors have new releases out this year with Kristen's and Patty's just out Christie's the summer of songbirds coming in just two weeks and Mary Kay's bright lights, big Christmas coming in September. To celebrate, we have some simply amazing events coming up, which means you can catch us live as a group multiple times this year. We've already been in Columbus, Charleston, and Huntsville together. And coming up this weekend, we'll be in Chicago to speak on a panel at the American Library Association Annual Conference. Then we'll be in Tampa on July 20th at Oxford Exchange to launch the summer, Christie's the Summer of Songbirds. Then we'll be in Atlantic Beach, North Carolina on August 1st for a breast cancer fundraiser. And last but not least, in Darien, Connecticut on October 4th to la launch Mary Kay's Bright Lights Big Christmas. So make sure you're signed up for our newsletter and for each of the four host authors' individual newsletters so that you're the first to know more. Okay, now you've been listening to our Writer's Block podcast, right? It drops every Friday on all major podcasting platforms. We'll always drop, post a link to the newest episode on our Facebook page and Instagram feed. On our most recent episode, Out Now, Ron and Christy talked to Ash Ashley Audrain about The Whispers. Coming this Friday, Ron and I will be talking to Curtis Sittenfeld about her hit novel, Romantic Comedy, which was a Reese's Book Club pick and which I also loved. So listen, review, subscribe, and share and shout with a friend if you like what you hear. Oh, you'll like what you hear. Just you trust me. So. <laughs> I can't wait to. I can't wait for this week's episode. Yeah. I know. I know. All right. Last week's was now, great. <clears throat> it, and we've heard another interview with her, and it was yeah. Yes. Okay. Now it's time for our next guest, Catherine Ray. A dear friend of mine, Catherine is a national best-selling and award-winning author with a lifelong love affair with books and with history. So luckily she's writing historical fiction. Her newest, A Shadow in Moscow, is her ninth novel, and she's also co-written a nonfiction book. Catherine holds a BA and MS from Northwestern University, graduating Phi Beta Kappa, and has lived across the country with a few years in England and Ireland as well. Catherine, her husband, and three children currently live outside of Chicago. Her new novel, A Shadow in Moscow, was just released last week on June 13th. Sean, can you bring Catherine on? Hi. I'm there. Hi, Hi Catherine. Hi. Boom. <laughs> Magic. I swear, that, that Phi Beta Kappa thing keeps uh, lately, and it hasn't for years, someone's finding it, and it's in the intros. And I'm going to have to start paying my like yearly dues soon. 
Like, <laughs> no, I haven't in like 20 years and I'm going to have to. <laughs> if we keep saying it. I know. It's not a problem I'm ever going to have. But anyway, <laughs> we, love, <laughs> we love having you, Catherine. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. All right. We're going to dive into this great novel. And um, it's set during the Cold War. And it's told from alternating points of view. Ingrid, who lost everyone she loved in the final days of World War II. And Anya, a woman who grew up in Moscow before getting her college degree in the United States. And slowly, these points of view come together and these two women begin to question the oppressive regime they've been committed to supporting. And you've said that you loved using their stories for the foundation, these two women's stories, to explore much larger themes. So can you talk to us about what you believe this story is really about and what those themes are? Yeah. Okay. So yes, on the surface, it is a story about two women, uh, Austrian-born Ingrid Bauer, Soviet-born Anya Kudnova, um, one primarily spying for MI6 during the first Cold War, um, the second during the second Cold War for the CIA. So this, this compare and contrast, both reaching that point where they will betray their homeland, which is the Soviet Union, and spy for the West, MI6 and the CIA. And as you said, you know, they come, they come together when Alder James hands that list in 1985 to the KGB, uh, signing the death warrants of 25 agents behind the Iron Curtain. Oh. But your question about, you know, the story behind the story, it really is a story of sacrifice and love and courage. But primarily, what gets you to that point? Um, Anya is the character through which I ex sort of explored that very defined line, though both of them have it. At Georgetown, she studied Thomas More. And Thomas More had this line that he said his conscience could not cross. And so Anya starts to question, what is that line for me? Will I step back from it or will I defy it and say, I, I will not follow this any further? And so it really is, it was a it was an interesting exploration for myself as well, wondering, you know, if I am called to show great courage, will I? <laughs> and what line will your conscience not cross? Right. What line is it? I, you know, that's the thing. Um, it was it, just really interesting to explore that. And people obviously, boy, throughout the 20th century, you know, you were talking with Hazel about World War II in all and conscientious object, objectors she was talking about. There are lots of lines, and we've had plenty of opportunity in human history to explore them. So um, it's a continuation, I guess, of those those questions. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Catherine, you've written about so many historical places and times. You last went to London, right? Like that was your last book. Mm -hmm. What inspired this novel and took you to Soviet Russia? Well, it was really interesting when I was studying, um, you know, the SOE and the women's spies of World War II, I kind of wondered, what do you all do next? <laughs> and so, you know, like Virginia Hall came back to the United States and worked for the CIA. And so then I thought, OK, writ large, what did the spying community do next? Yep. And, you know, the Cold War started. I mean, it, it, it just 
It's right on the heels of World War II. It's just yeah. this line, this line that keeps going. And so I started wondering what changed, what didn't change. When, when one war stopped, how did this colder war, you know, that never reaches that boiling point that there's direct conflict, but it simmers all over the globe, you know, what, what was going on there? So it really is a story almost of moving those chess pieces that the Cold War did. And, and so there were many different levels of interest, but Ingrid and Anya's voice came very quickly to me. And, and all of a sudden they had a story to tell, but in that new time frame. Um, so, you know, also, Catherine, Putin era Russia is very much in the news right now. So yeah. did the current situation there temper your approach to writing this novel at all? And also, do you see any modern day parallels between your story and what's unfolding in modern day Russia? Uh, to be honest, um, hmm. it did it did temper it in the sense that I wanted to be very cognizant that that Cold War is is simmering and warming up, getting hot. Um, yeah. But 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 to be honest, it isn't. It didn't feel new. And what I'm what I mean by that is when I look back at World War One, the the inner war years that was just like lunch break, and then World <laughs> War Two. It is the same threads, and the Cold War continued to them. And although the Berlin Wall fell in eighty nine, the Soviet Union fell in ninety one. Those tensions and those ideologies that that fuel those tensions, they didn't go away. And so, and so we're, we're, we haven't come to anything new. We've just warmed up. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Really hot. Yeah, Something so, yeah. yeah. Well, to take a completely different tack. <laughs> <laughs> You know, several of your novels, like Dear Mr. Knightley and The Austin Escape and Lizzie and Jane, were obviously Jane Austen inspired. And I know you've also said they are C.S. Lewis inspired. So I'm wondering about your transition from a card, apparently a card carrying Janeite to to historical fiction. Now, how did that happen? Okay, so I have not put my Janeite card down yet. Um, there's, okay, a great, there's, a, there's a great scene in um, Shadow Moscow where Anya compares Tolstoy to Austin. And ah. I'm not going to tell you who comes out ahead. So you have to <laughs> but anyway, um, let's see. You know, historical fiction actually came from my first seven novels are all contemporary. And they are there aren't retellings of Jane Austen. They're very contemporary novels that use Jane Austen as right. that common book loving language. Yeah. And when I came I like to the printed letter bookshop, um, I realized well, it was inspired by C.S. Lewis, that book. But I realized how indelibly our past affects us, whether we are aware of it or not. And that led me to the London house where I wanted the past to be an objective reality not subjective memory or backstory. So that split time happened. And then I had so much fun with these spies of World War II that I just kept going into the- Oh, country. I love it. So that's, that's how that happened. And I'm loving historical fiction. So I don't think I'm gonna jump ship back to contemporary quite yet. I mean, who doesn't love a good spy novel? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, well, we know because we've, We've talked to you before and followed your career, but you have loved stories all your life and they have guided you. So you have a great quote in the novel where Anya says, um, the best stories are love stories. 
So tell us what makes you say that and what does mm-hmm. a love story mean to you? You know, it, it actually, I think who said it best was uh, George Stein, Steinbeck in a journal from 1937. He said that at the base level, all stories are love, are love stories. That if man can understand, if we can understand each other better, um, that that is the you know the basis of a great story and, and the basis of a, obviously of humanity is to love each other well. And I think when I think about love, love, I will actually go back to C.S. Lewis with those four types. A love story can be any type. In Lizzie and Jane, it was sisters. It's not always that romantic love. In um, in A Shadow in Moscow, it is love of family and friends and of country and love of what one believes is right. Um, so, yes, I do. I definitely write love stories, but maybe a little unexpected twists on them. I love that. Well, Anya also says that the why matters most. So talk to us about that and how that guided the novel for you. Yeah. Um, motivation. You know, as Hazel was talking about choice, about, you know, what what would I do? Why would I do it? You know, Anya's handler actually says to her, if your motivation is money and, and mm-hmm. spies were paid, if your motivation is money, you'll get caught, you'll get killed. It is not enough to sustain the pressure and the dual persona that you will be living for as long as you are active. Um, So your why, you have to truly believe in it. It has to be an integral part of you. And and I think, you know, I see that around us. If you've got friends who have a really great why as to who they are and what they do, it's a beautiful thing to witness. You know, somebody who knows truly who they are Yep. So I like exploring that. So maybe maybe I'll catch some of that myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So Catherine, I know how deeply you research all of your historical fiction. Can you talk to us a little bit about the research you did for this novel? So I mean, you mm-hmm. were you had Cold War Soviet stuff. You had Vienna. You had Washington D.C. How did you dig into all of this? Um, you know, I, I a lot was was books. There's so much written. Um, so did that big, big world diving into the books first. I also read the fiction of the time, a lot of John le Carré, Frederick Forsyth. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, what what fiction writers were dealing with that time and that place, and that was really interesting. I also talked to a few former officers within the CIA who now all work for investment banks, which kind of got me a little interesting. I know. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that is. Yeah. And, and a few of the cultural details. I talked with a woman who grew up in the Soviet Union extensively. And there's one scene where Anya talks about uh, collecting recycling and the hidden books within those pamphlets and that she loved those books. And that is what Ekaterina told me about from growing up. They would collect recycling and there'd be hidden books within the recycling pamphlets that they could collect. And so cultural details came from her. So it was a very multi-pronged approach. And in fact, in 1985, the year the book ends, I visited the USSR. And so I had a lot of those memories. Um, I've not been back since. That's so cool. Well, you know, post-91, it's going to be so different anyway. All the maps had to be pre-91 because street names changed, city names changed, parks names changed. But I remember in 85, the guard towers, the rules of what we could and could not do and where we could not go. Um, And so that formed 
that. What, what were you doing there in 85? That's so interesting. It was a, a family trip. Wow. <laughs> wow. Your family vacations differently than mine. Yeah. <laughs> I think we went to Cypress Gardens in 1985. <laughs> yeah, my family went to Gatlinburg. <laughs> I mean, seriously, crazy. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, we went with my grandparents. Wow. wow. What an experience Amazing. to think that you used it all those years later to you know, know. help educate the book. That's incredible. Yeah. That's, that's really so cool. cool. Yeah. Well, Catherine, you write from two women's points of view mm-hmm. as they come to see their homeland through new eyes. How hard was it to write from a Soviet woman's um, point of view? And which woman was easiest to write for you? Um. Oh, wow. I, I don't know that one was easier. They were so different. But but I will tell you, I had to give them extensive experience outside the Soviet Union so that I could have um, differences of per- perspective. I've moved 17 times. And oh, so wow. I know my goodness. feet on the ground that let you understand a culture. That is why actually Ingrid is Austrian born. She lives, she moves as an adult to the Soviet Union. Anya, though Soviet-born, um, does spend her college years in at Georgetown University in the U.S., so I wanted to give her that different experience so that I could then contrast sort of seeing things from different perspectives. Um, so that was one thing. Um, the e- easier to write. You know, Ingrid's, Ingrid's portion is written in third person because she is the shadow. So it was, it was really fun writing her to kind of play with that sort of little bit of distance. Mm. Whereas Anya's voice was very strong. She's the more impetuous young and makes mistakes. Um, first person narration. And so I guess I might say I understood her voice better, but I understood Ingrid's motivation and the way she worked maybe better. Gotcha. Um, Did yeah. that come to you that, that, um, decision to do one in first and one in third did that come to you at the beginning of the book I mean did you outline it and then when you started writing think oh no no this character has to be first and that one has to be third I mean it's kind of a writer's question but I think readers are interested too no it's 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 actually a great question um it did come to me right away because I wanted Ingrid to be shadowed and what Ah. great way to convey that is to give that distance Gotcha. Um, so it didn't come to me right away. And I, I actually wanted us to, Anya, it is, on, Anya is, I would call the main character. She's the main character of the story. Um, right. Ingrid has a, a lesser role to play, maybe 30% of the novel. But um, I wanted her to be first person because I wanted us to feel everything she goes for, everything she goes through right, right next to her. Right. And I played with perspective before in the printed letter bookshop in that book. Um, one character is third person until the halfway point when she sort of claims her voice and then she switches to first person. So I had played with those points of views previously. Ah, love it. Well, love that's that. uh, that's more skillful than I could ever be. I know. Well, Catherine, before you go, we've loved talking to you. We could listen to you talk on and on about this book, but can you tell us about your 10 minute book club and then where viewers can find you on the road and online in coming weeks? 
Yeah. So, so every Wednesday, my, my 10 minute book talk is with uh, authors, Rachel Linden and Marie Bostwick. And we talk to authors each week for 10 short, sweet minutes. So it is quick, quick. and it is really fun. And a few of you have been on it, which is so fun. But um, so you can find me there on Instagram. And we're also on YouTube and Facebook with that. But other than that, it's katherineray.com is my website. Catherine Ray, I'm on Instagram. Catherine Ray Books, I'm on Facebook. And um, my, uh, let's see, tour schedule is also on my website. And Perfect. I answer all my own emails. So Perfect. Oh, nice. that, Patty, I got that from C.S. Lewis. Yeah. He wrote everybody back himself. And I was like, if Lewis can do it, so can I. Can I. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And tell well, everybody Ray is R-E-A-Y. Not yes, it's so true. It's R E A Y. It's not. It's not pronounced R E A, but it definitely is. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us tonight, Catherine. We love having Thanks, you. Catherine. Thank, Thank you, Catherine. Okay, what an evening. I mean, I feel. Okay. I mean, I feel like I've gotten a, a master's degree in <laughs> in. in um, American and European history, mm -hmm. but it's not over yet because we're welcoming Tilo on the after show in just a minute. Don't forget, you can find all our back episodes on YouTube. We'll be back next week to welcome Annabelle Monahan and Megan Miranda, and the writing pair of Mary Huddleston and Asher Paul will join us for the after show. We've got a fun episode in store for you, and we can't wait. Yeah. We'll see you next week, but first, we'll see you in thirty seconds for the after show. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Do you feel your yeah? Do you feel your teeth? Do you feel your to be red stack going higher? Yes, higher yes, higher. always. With all these amazing it's gonna, authors, it's gonna fall over on me, and then I'm gonna yeah. need to be rescued on Patty's door, floating in the. <laughs> You're gonna need my floaty. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna get that bottle of uh, whiskey that Hazel yeah, promised. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, what a show tonight from a drafty lifeboat in the North Atlantic to Russia with love. Yeah. Um, I love, love talking to authors. I mean, they're both so smart. I've, I'm intimidated. Yes. And, and I loved how both of them really hooked into exactly what's going on in the news right now. Like if you look at the... You know, if you turn on the news, they're talking about Russia and they're talking about the Titanic, right? Like they're talking about... I, I don't know. I, it it just it, it felt yeah. very timely. Very timely. Yeah. Without ever knowing well, that both, it would. Yeah. 100%. Right? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the same yeah. thing happened to you, Patty, when you wrote Surviving Savannah, right? Yep. And, and they yeah. found it. Yeah. 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 But talking to both of them, too, it's such a reminder that if something, if you're curious about something, you know, just grab onto it and go yeah. for it because yeah. here we are with these two amazing books. So. Yeah. Well, yep. we still have a lot more in store for the after show. And that brings us to the topic of T.I. Lowe. T.I. Lowe says she is an ordinary country girl, but I've met her numerous <laughs> times. And she is more than an ordinary country girl who loves to tell extraordinary stories. She is the author of nearly 20 published novels, including her recent best-selling and critically acclaimed under the Magnolias, and her debut breakout was called Lulu's Cafe. So she lives with her husband and family in coastal South Carolina. 
Her new book, Indigo Isle, and isn't that a beautiful cover, right? Yeah. It was just released Gorgeous. earlier this month on June 6th. Sean, can you bring T.I. on? Hi. Hey, y'all. How are you? Good. Now, look, you forgot my master's and my PhD degrees. And your five beta yeah. kappa. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I have master's and PhD from the University of YouTube. So. Hey. Uh, <laughs> What about what about your stint in the CIA and the Secret Service and the KGB? That too, yeah, yeah. That too. That, that's that's a secret. About that, in case yeah. they, you know, come after us. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I just I just blew her cover. I'm so she sorry, Tia. Again, whoop, Sarah did it again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to the topic at hand, which is the while. Yes. The story of Sonny Bates, a movie location scout who left South Carolina 15 years ago and has returned for her latest gig. Soon she finds a private barrier island with a recluse named Hudson Renfro, who has exiled himself for years. He tends his fields of indigo and makes dye, but he has his own secrets and stories. Sonny and Hudson collide in a beautiful story. So if that is what the story is about, Come on, T.I., what's it really about? <laughs> well, it's about the, CS, the C, CIA. I didn't mess up the joke. <laughs> See, my southern tongue, I mean, it, it, the more nervous I get, the more I sound drunk, but it, I'm really just nervous. <laughs> you, are, you are among friends tonight, T.I. You are. Fair. So it's... Um, it's my southern take on Beauty and the Beast, because I just love Beauty and the Beast. It's my favorite fairy tale. And to me, um, that's my favorite because I love flawed characters because good grief, I'm a flawed one just sitting here. I mean, hello, I'm a hot mess, but um, I can relate to that. And so that that's what it's about. But what it's really about is um, back in 2017, it seemed like um, I, I just was really in, um, intrigued and just um, overwhelmed by the, all the women in Hollywood that came out with the Me Too movement. And mm -hmm. I, I cheered them on and. And uh, so many people cheered him on, but so you know, they had another crowd that was insinuating that you know they were just doing it for publicity and whatnot. And um, you know, I hated that because they they were giving themselves a voice and people were trying to take it away. And um, so I wanted to take a story and talk about the woman that was behind the scenes. And so that's why I decided to put uh, Sunny Bates behind the scenes as a location location scout. And uh, this is her finding her voice through the story to stand up for, you know, what's right. And um, so that's what it's really about. Oh, I, I love that. And it's so interesting to hear you mention Beauty and the Beast because I, I was going to ask you about that. That's one of my favorite stories too. It's um, yeah, I'm actually at Disney world right now. I'm at, at a Disney hotel. <laughs> so I'm very much oh, in Beauty and the I'm Beast jealous. world. <laughs> um, but I, I'm wondering whether you intended when you sat down to write this, did you intend from day one to write your own sort of version of Beauty and the Beast? Or was this something that evolved as you saw the parallels between the story you were telling and this story that you so loved? Can you tell us a little bit about that process? You know, as authors, uh, we, we've always got our storytellers. I feel like I'm just a good old Southern, Southern storyteller. Is There's all sorts of stories always um, developing and how do you want to put it together? But yeah, I've always loved Beauty and the Beast. And when um, I saw that back in 2017, this story's been with me for quite a while. Yeah. And um, 
I needed to figure out a way to get her back close to home. It's set in Charleston, South Carolina, and she's from Georgetown. And so um, the whole idea of her going to this barrier island and, you know, he's got his his uh, his barriers. He's a recluse. And so he has walls to get past. But she, and his, you know, quite frankly, no trespassing on his island. He even called the cops on her. But um, I wanted to reflect his walls, his actual walls with her walls, because she would put on, you know, a front, you know, a happy face, a smiley face. And that can be walls and barriers, too, that we hide behind. So it just it's amazing, Kristen, how, um, you know, when you're in a story, how it starts developing, you're like the, you know, everything starts tying together. Yeah, just so like true. Indigo. Um, I was fascinated by Indigo. It's one of the. Back in the 17s, it was one of the top exports uh, in South Carolina. And um, there's actually an entire indigo revival going on in the state of South Carolina. There's wow. so many artisans and farmers that are growing the plant and harvesting the um, dye. And uh, I was, oh. oh, my goodness. So I was able to go to an actual uh, workshop where we started the day in Newberry. And you can go to Edisto Island, too, to do these workshops. Uh, it was back in 2019, and we we went to the indigo field, and it looks like a whole bunch of weeds. But we we <gasps> harvested the indigo, and we took wow. it back to our tables, and we plucked the leaves off, and then we steeped it. And it it looked it was like steeping tea. It didn't smell like tea. It smelled like collard greens cooking. If you know what collard greens smell <laughs> like, it's not very pleasant. But uh, and then uh, at the end of the day, once our Indi our indigo was complete. Uh, the dye was extracted from the leaves. We were able to dye scarves. And this is one that I did that day. Ooh, oh, wow. So I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, and, and so when you talk about how uh, you take this theme and it correlates with your, uh, your character, um, Sunny, she thought she was a weed. You know, she, she didn't think oh. she was good enough. And through her trials and everything that she was going through, she, um, you know, she felt beaten and bruised. And that same thing with the, you know, it went with the indigo. It was beaten and bruised, but something so beautiful can come out of it at the end. Oh, I so love I mean, indigo farming is so fascinating. You know, I've spent many years of my adult life over on Defusky, where they have completely yes. revived the ancient mm -hmm. art of, of indigo. Um, and I was at an artist thing tonight before I came on the show, and she does like um, flower hammering and dyeing. And I got this beautiful indigo. Look at that. And it made oh, me think so beautiful. much about you because, um, yeah, it's just oh, gorgeous. So oh, gorgeous. Oh, wow. And I mean, see, look, the flowers are hammered into yeah, it. You see oh, it. Wow. Oh my gosh, it is so gorgeous. Patty, and is, is the is the dark color the indigo? Is that what that is? Yes, and wow. and also black eyed Susans. Oh, anyway, wow. but he's it, it, the when she, when she was giving this lecture, this talk this evening on the plants, and then she started describing the indigo. I'm like, I read T.I.'s book. I, read book. <laughs> <laughs> I already know. It's really, really tall, and you have to hack it off at the bottom. Um, and this woman's got PhD from University of YouTube. She knows what she's talking about. She's exactly. with the CIA. <laughs> yeah, you did it. You went to one. But I need to know why you decided to write about it. Like, what was the inspiration that made you say indigo, you know, the beaten, the bruised, the weed, 
what what inspired you to try it and to write about it? Well, I read Indigo Girl, and it was the whole history of Eliza Lucas, yeah. and it just fascinated me. And I'm like, well, let's bring that contemporary. And the, I mean, it was it was like perfect timing because when I decided I want to do that, there was this whole revival going on. So I was very lucky that I I've heard that this year is the year of Indigo. So it's been like. Um, amazing at all the things that I find that's with Indigo now. It was just something I wanted to learn a little bit more about. And, you know, when I put it, I set Indigo Isle, um, I didn't even realize how it would go so smoothly with the story of Sunny and her journey of, um, you know, from start to finish. And uh, it, it's just amazing how things work out that way. It's crazy. When you follow your curiosity, that's what happens. Mm -hmm really yeah. interesting. Well, T.I., you mentioned um, Me Too, but so within this gorgeous story, there are also some really hard things to grapple with mm -hmm. as we come to Sonny's um, redemption. Um, and you address sexual abuse and the, and the dilemma of what to call out and when. Um, so why mm -hmm. is it important to you to craft characters who go through such hard things? And was it hard for you to put Sonny through, through all that? It was. Um, my gosh, y'all, we go through so much. And I think so, so many times we don't feel like we have a voice to talk about it. And, um, you know, with my book, uh, Indigo Isle, if you can go back to Lulu's Cafe under the main noise, it's me wanting to give voice to hard topics. Uh, no, it's not easy to write. Um, life's not hard and life's not, life's not easy. Uh, a lot of times I have to cut a joke in the middle of something hard just so I can get through it. And I do that a lot with my books too. And um, I felt like I couldn't give the subject justice if I didn't put Sunny through the hard times. Uh, mm -hmm. It was it was hard to write those things, um, but I feel like you know I could. You can't gloss over the hard parts, uh, it, and it definitely makes celebrating the um, the happily ever afters a lot a lot yeah. funner that way. Yeah, that's so true. All right, you you talk about what you've put them through, but Lordy T.I., you put yourself through it by writing it. And we, we often talk about how books change us as we write them. So can you talk about how this book changed you or how the characters of Sunny and Hudson changed you? Oh gosh, um, let's see. Every time I write about a hard subject, I think it changes me. It changes me. I can be more understanding of people that are going through it. Um, uh, I've lived, you know, out in the country where, you know, I'm not anywhere near Hollywood. But um, I think if you pay attention to your surroundings more so, you don't have to have a, a big voice, let's say, in Hollywood or whatnot that people right around you are suffering and, you know, yeah. just pay attention to people more. And I think that's what I take away when um, I write these hard subjects. That's oh, beautiful. Yep. Absolutely. We could all walk away with that for sure. Yeah. yeah. A little more empathy. Yeah. 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 I think, um, I think all of us as writers, if we put our antenna up and they start to vibrate mm -hmm. and then they vibrate a little bit more, and then the next thing you know, you've grabbed a pen or your laptop. Yeah. And you've and you've you've gone there. Yeah, for sure. And that, I think that's that's one of the one of the gifts of writing fiction is you can do that. Mm -hmm. 
you can yeah. take those moments that reverberate with you and put put them into a story that will reverberate hopefully with your readers right yeah. yes yeah right okay wow we didn't mean to go so deep there did we <laughs> no that was great I, I, yeah, that's great we want to thank you all thank you Tia. <laughs> hey don't don't cry on that don't mess that up right <laughs> thank you everyone for joining us tonight it was so lovely to see you and to all of you out there thank you for joining us tonight as always we are deeply grateful for your support of this show, of our books, of our guests and their books. And most of all, of each other. Be good to each other. That's yeah. kind of the closing word. Yes, yes. Y'all yeah. well, I, I have to thank you, ladies. I've, I've been a huge fan of this uh, from the get-go. I've been watching Friends and Fiction, and I thoroughly enjoy it as a reader. And to be a guest tonight, girl, I'm just so honored. Thank y'all for having <laughs> oh, me. Oh, having you. We're going to let that be our sign off tonight. Girl. <laughs> Girl. We'll see you all. Right. We'll see you all next week. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.